You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. I know I'm a pastor, but listen to all the words of these stories. This first story, I'm going to start it midway because it's very long, and I'm going to read a portion of it. But Abraham wants a wife for his son Isaac, and so he sends his servant Eleazar to go find a wife for Isaac. And Eleazar is now on the journey going to find a wife, and here's a portion of that story. It says from Genesis 24, starting in verse 12, and it says this. And Eleazar said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. That's an interesting quality to look for in a lady, but hey, we'll, we'll go on. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Let the woman who's supposed to marry Isaac give me a drink and water all of my camels. If this happens, then I'll know that she the one. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Naor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. So far, so good. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant, Eleazar, ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. Now that you've done all the hard work of drawing that water up, and I watched the entire time, can I have some? You have to see the humor in all of this, everybody. She said, drink, my lord. She's pretty. She called him lord. This sounds good. On my end, this sounds good. Wonderful ideas here. We should talk about them. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly, steadfast gal, she quickly (laughs) emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. This verse blows my mind. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. Bro, what are you looking for? As Ian said Friday, camel number three, I'm taking her home. Like, this is the one. So pause on that for a second. I'm sure everybody loves the way that story sounds in the room. But hey, here we go. Romans 7. We'll take a break from that story for a second. Romans 7. Anybody ever have an inner crisis of not knowing who you are or feeling confused ever in your life? Here's Paul's version of that. 
For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, and I'm going to use this uh, every time I mess up now. It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me did it. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me forgot to take out the garbage. <laughs> so... I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Jacqueline, please read us some good news this morning. A reading from the book of Song of Solomon. The voice of my beloved. Behold, he comes leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. The word of the Lord. I didn't know the Bible quoted me. That's nice. I'm just kidding. Go on. Would you stand for the gospel reading from the book of Matthew? But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by, by, by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word of the Lord. You may be seated this morning. Thank you, Jacqueline. Today, actually to the day, is uh, six years since Jacqueline and I have gotten ordained to be pastors here. And six years since John and Steph joined us as worship leaders of Salem Tab. 
a little bit has happened in these six years. I've been ordained twice, once, well, three times, actually, once as your pastor, once as a deacon in the CEEC, and once as a priest in the CEEC. I've had two surgeries on my foot. We went, that's not funny. (laughs) We went through a pandemic. Anybody remember that? Jacqueline and I have lived in three houses in those six years and purchased our first one right smack in the middle of a pandemic. And that is the day I hurt my foot, bringing boxes through a crowded garage with Legos on the floor. Also, thank you to everyone who sends me Lego memes. Me and my toe love it. We've baptized over a dozen kids. Uh, We've dedicated over a dozen kids. We've baptized over 30 people. We've done weddings. We have suffered losses and... In six years, beginning our seventh year here today, Jacqueline and I, there's one thing we agree on. Jacqueline has been a part of this church her entire life. And when I was growing up in the Peekskill Assembly of God, I had no idea that the pastor, my first pastor, has deep and, and thick and obvious genealogical ties to this church. And so for all of our lives, Jacqueline and I have been involved one way or another in this church. And so with all of those things that we've been through over the last six years and all the stuff you've all been through and the stuff we've walked with you through, we, we would n- just never want to pastor another group of people. We love you all so much. It's not even funny. It's not even funny. And so I wanted to, I wanted to teach on something today. I thought, like, what is one of the most significant lessons I've learned in the six years that I've pastored? You know, there are some lessons that God will teach you before he brings you into something to get you ready to be brought into that thing. And then there are other things that he'll teach you only because you've inhabited that new space and now you have to learn them because you have no choice. And all the parents said, amen. There are things you learn every day as a parent that you wish you had learned yesterday. Anyone? Yes. And... I wanted to share one of those things. I wanted to share one thing of the many, many things that Jacqueline and I have learned over the last six years. And we've heard it said before, don't pray for patience because God will send you something that will make you. Here's the thing. You ready? Listen. He's going to send you that thing whether you pray for patience or not. It's coming. Something's about to happen. This sermon may be a reason for you to need patience. I don't know. But something's happening. The temperature in the room may be a reason why somebody needs patience. It may be a reason why I need patience because it's a balmy 70 degrees in here right now. And I'm melting like the Wicked Witch of the West. That was a long sentence, but you get the point. The sermon title for today is Don't Pray for Patience. Pray for Love. And we will talk about why. And I also just want to point out, because there are things that I'm thankful for. I'm a very reflective person. I like holidays and anniversaries and things because they're, they're human liturgies to reflect. This picture, you all don't even know. I text Ian and say, here's the title. I want a picture of something that is universal for needing patience. And what is more universal than spilt milk on a table? Don't cry over Right? We know this as like an image for everything that could go wrong in life. So I said, Ian, I want a picture of a glass of milk spilled on a table. And he sent me a picture of a bottle of milk spilled, but there was no table. And I said, what are we doing here? 
I need a table. It has to be spilled on a table, Ian. It has to be on a table. I have no patience for this. And so all of a sudden, Ian texted me this picture. And I was like, that room looks a little familiar to me. It looks like our kitchen downstairs. And Ian said, I went downstairs, I poured heavy cream in a glass, I spilled it on the table. Are you happy? And now we have ants, because it's still there, because we're men, and we high-fived it and forgot to clean it up. Kerry's like, I'll be right back. (laughs) Don't pray for patience. Pray for love. Here's one reason why. Patience, listen to this, patience alone, patience alone is merely you restraining yourself from a situation, but it's not necessarily you giving yourself to the situation. I didn't flip out. I remember early, early on in our marriage, we're still living at Old Post Mall in Fishkill, and man, I was, I was just struggling with like the whiplash of all of the things happening in my life, and I was really struggling with getting angry, and this one time, Jacqueline and I got into an argument, and I was like fuming, and I was ready to go off, and I walk into our bedroom, and I like pace around the bedroom, and I finally calmed down, and I was like, Lord, we did it. I didn't say anything. It's a Christmas miracle. And the Holy Spirit said, this is good, but you lost your temper. And I was like, uh, I know you're busy, but back there I didn't say anything. And the Holy Spirit said, your temperament had to get you out of the situation. I would like it so that you could remain in the situation and not have to leave. I was like, well, your standards are a bit high. No. You created me. This is your fault. (laughs) There's a way in which we can get happy because we didn't bite back, because we didn't say something back, because we kept our cool. But patience alone is not enough because what we need to do is give ourselves to a situation, not merely restrain ourselves from it. Patience alone means I'm not flipping out. I'm not biting back. I'm not taking vengeance. I'm not getting the last word. I'm keeping my cool. I'm not sending that text. I'm not sending that email. I'm not subtweeting somebody. I'm not posting something so somebody sees it. I'm not doing those things, but it also, that by itself means you're also not present to the situation either. So we don't just pray for patience. We pray for love because, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13, 4, love is patient. Love is patient. Praying for patience alone, you could attain patience but not be loving. You could restrain the anger but not be offering the gift. You could not get mad at your kids, but that doesn't mean you're present to them. It just means you're not damaging, but that doesn't mean you're necessarily bringing the good. Straight across the board, any situation is your boss at work, whatever, you could could come home. And it is a success to not take vengeance. It's a success when you don't need the last word. Listen, you all know who your pastor is. I know who I am. It is a success when I keep my mouth shut. 
But God doesn't want me to keep my mouth shut. He wants my mouth to be open. He wants rivers of life flowing out of me, though. So it's not enough to just not say something mean. We need to be speaking life. Patience alone is not a virtue. Love that is patient is a virtue. Because love is willing the good of the other, which means I'm going to restrain the carnality that wants to come out of my body, but I'm going to offer what the Spirit is doing for you through my body. This make sense? It's very easy. No, it's not at all. Satan wants us, you ready? What the devil wants is for us to try harder to be patient. This is with all the virtues. Notice that in in Galatians, Paul talks about the works of the flesh, and then when it comes to the virtues, he calls it the what of the spirit? The fruit of the spirit. Notice that the things that are done in the flesh are things that we can do all by ourselves. They're works. They're things that we can do. But the fruit of the spirit is something that we can't do by ourselves. It's fruit. It needs more than one thing to happen. So whenever our goal is to try harder, we might be playing the devil's game. Because he wants us to muster up willpower to get things right. And here's what he knows and here's what we know. A, willpower, if it exists at all, is a, is a house of cards in a gusty windstorm. It might be there for a split second, but... Whew, And there it goes. There goes our willpower. I have said so many times, I'm going to eat right. Then I watch the Mets, and then a commercial comes on. And I'm like, yo, should we get Domino's? It's the only thing that's open. You know what I mean? And next thing you know, it's like the willpower can just go. And like you can eat right for nine straight days. One Domino's pizza, you're back to negative 18 days eating right. Anybody realize this? When you do something wrong, it has such damaging effects. And when you do something right, it's like it takes 900 right things for the atmosphere to change at all. And one comment out the side of your face and you're back where you started 10 years ago. God's will is not for us to will ourselves into patience. God moves us into patience through his self-offering of love into our life. He loves us into the virtues. His love for us creates in us the ability, the grace, and the space to slowly grow into the fruit of the Spirit. And listen, how gracious is our Heavenly Father that the virtues that he's looking for in us, he calls them fruit. Because he's not in a rush with your character. He's not in a rush with your behavior. He wants to cultivate your life in the slow, methodical way that farmers cultivate a field. He knows there's going to be some droughts. He knows there's going to be some floods. He knows some days it's going to, and even in good seasons, sometimes that good season's going to be 30-fold. Sometimes that good season's going to be 60-fold. Sometimes that good season's going to be 100-fold. With me, sometimes that good season's going to be three-fold. Like, whatever it is, he's patient. What he's looking for, he relates it to fruit. He's not looking for one good day. He's looking for a life that is slowly being cultivated with what? The loving 
invitation of God. Let's talk about this for a second. Well, first, just so you know that I, I struggle with patience, but I got, I got two things right yesterday. And do you know how good it feels to get something right the day before you preach on it? I can't even tell you. This is like the third time it ever happened in six years. I'm going to preach on something, and then things began happening in my life yesterday, and I thought to myself, i got to preach on this tomorrow. Let's try to get it right. Maybe that's a little selfish that I only wanted to get it right because I was preaching on it today, but the Lord's not done with me yet. I'm a field. He's slowly cultivating it. Don't judge me. It's fine. Or judge me. Go ahead. You're probably right. Okay? But here's what happened. I am going to, we're having some people over after church today. John and Steph's coming over after church today. We're going to have some fun. Pia's coming over after church today. We're going to have some fun. And I'm like, you know what? My, my yard looks like garbage. I'm going to mow the lawn and get it nice for our guests. So I go outside, and it was such a cool, nice, refreshing day yesterday. And I'm in such amazing shape. So I go out there. I go out there, and, like, I pull, push the lawnmower onto the grass, and I'm like, My legs cramping. It's hot. It was hot yesterday. So I put my work tune headphones on. I put on country heat radio because country music is the Christmas carols of the summertime. <laughs> and I'm mowing along and I do the front yard, which is only half because our backyard. God bless us. We finally got a big backyard. Be careful when you pray for blessings. So I sit down to take a break. And I, get, I look at my phone and I get this picture from Jacqueline. That, that picture, that one comes later. <laughs> this one. I get this picture from Jacqueline. Yes, it is. What you don't know and you need to know about my wife is this is the worst thing that's ever happened to her in her entire life. When we were just married, I come home from work one day and I see a chair in the middle of our living room floor, it's soaking wet on the ceiling, and she's not home. And I'm like, am I in an unsolvable murder here? Like, what happened? And it was so obvious, Jacqueline saw a spider on the ceiling and tried to spray it. She's terrified of these things. She's terrified of these enormous monsters. So she texts me this picture, and she says, I'm in the ShopRite parking lot. And I'm not driving this car. <laughs> because Spider-Man is in it. And I said, well, what are we going to do? And she said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to kill it. But if I don't, I'm not driving the car. If it falls on the ground, I'm not driving this car ever again. So here I am now. So I... So she's like, what do I do? And then I sent her this picture. Now you can put the cool picture of me up there. I was sweating. I was tired. I sent, her, I sent this to her. And I was like, I'm mowing the lawn, and I'm dying. I'm physically actually dying. This is what it feels like to die. I know what it is right now. And I said, in my head, I'm like, all right, so here's the thing, Bill. Patience is, don't say anything sarcastic. She's having an issue. Whether I think she should be or not with this particular thing, it's irrelevant. She's having it. But I also, I can't just restrain myself. I have to do something good because Jesus. And so I said, do you want me to come there and drive your car home and you can drive mine? Then I sent her this picture so she'd say no. 
By the way, I do a really good yard. Not going to lie. Not going to lie. All right, you can take the picture of me off. Great picture, though. You could just take the whole thing. Look at that. You could, you could hit a nice little golf ball right on off that. Set it down. Later on that day, Jacqueline got home. Oh, I said, go, I said uh, something about vacuuming it out, and she took it to the car wash and vacuumed the spider into oblivion. She made Sophia watch the spider while she drove up the road. And I said, stay on the phone with me, please. Our children are in the car, and if this spider falls, you're crazy. Later on, I'm at, I'm at my brother and sister-in-law, Frank and Jen's house, and me and Sophia are swimming after my wonderful day, my successful day in the yard. We're swimming, and I try to tell Sophia it's time to go. And did she go right away? She didn't even, she pretended I wasn't alive. I was saying, let's go. I was being pretty calm, Frank, pretty chill, right? Like, you know, in my head, like I'm, I'm waterboarding her and I'm doing everything I can to try to get her to go. But like, it, it took probably more than 30 minutes to leave. Then my sister-in-law gives her a bag and says, fill it up with candy. Thank you. And I'm calm and, and we get in the car and there I am again. I'm like, wow, I was pretty patient. But I was like, but now that's not enough. I said, Sophia, let's go to Coldstone and get ice cream. Now, the thing is, I recently heard her mention, without knowing I could hear, that Theo's been getting a lot of attention lately. So I wanted to have a, an evening where it was just me and her. And so I noticed that I was trying to rush my way through. And when we got in the car, I was like, let's go to Coldstone. And when we're eating, I got to take this picture of Sophia. And, and, and the thing is, like, I, I know. I know her smile that's like, mm, get out of my face. And I know her smile that's, I'm feeling good about myself right now. And so it's not just about restraint. It's about offering something good in place of the fiery comments you wanted to make. Loving patience is not just about not doing something wrong. It's about replacing it with something that is life-giving. And in this story with Eleazar, now that I just bragged on myself for a little while, listen, when, to, I know the men understand it. When you get something right, we got to talk about it. We got to talk about it because it happens far and few between. It's like a solar eclipse. It might never happen again. Or if it does, you might not be there to see it. So... Abraham's servant, Abraham's servant says, all right, here's what I'm going to do. Elias are so patient in this story. He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, the fleece I'm going to put out here is if this woman comes and gives me a drink and then feeds my herd of camels, she'll be the one for my master Abraham's son Isaac. And Rebecca shows up. She's pretty. He runs directly to her and says, can I have a drink? She says, here you go, my Lord. Here's a drink for you. And oh, your camels look thirsty too. Up, 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 up. Let me feed them for you. And after probably three hours of this, he steps back and says, Lord, is she the one? See, you know, it's funny to us because the story is extremely comical. And it's got gospel implications all through it that we'll talk about another time. But one of the other reasons we find it funny is because 
we're so impatient, we wouldn't even put out a fleece. We would just find the first person and go home. She's pretty. Let's go. It's incredible that this detailed prayer that he laid out happened exactly the way he laid it out. And his spirit is still settled. And he says, now, is this, it says he gazed at her. I want to know that this is actually the right decision. And it was discernment, not just her actions, that confirmed it. And then they go inside, and he's like, let's go. And her father's like, how about she stays 10 days? He's like, let's go. We're leaving now. And they said, how about we ask Rebecca? And she said, we'll go now. So he's working to get her home, but he's also being patient. He's not overriding her father. He's not rushing the situation. You ready? He isn't doing things beyond the pace of her own agency to know if she wants to or not. That's patience. So many things happen to confirm that she should go, and yet he's patient. And the question I had when I read that text is, why are, do we struggle with this kind of patience? And then you get to the Romans text, and here's the answer. Paul is conflicted in himself. Oh, wretched man that I am. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. When I do something, it's something I didn't want to do. But then when that happens, it's sin and in me. And I know it's sin in my members. I know my body's good, but I know there's evil in me. Wretched man that I am. I don't know what to do. I don't know where I'm going. When I go this place, it's the wrong place. When I want to go the right place, I go the wrong place. Help. And the reality is, when we are unresolved on the inside, we try to resolve things too fast on the outside to gain some control of our life. I'm going to say that again slower. When we are all turned up on the inside, restless on the inside of who we are, we have to get control. And so we try to resolve situations on the outside as fast as we can because on the inside we're feeling so chaotic. We don't know who we are. We don't know what's right. We don't know what's wrong. When we do know what's right or wrong, we get them mixed up. So what I do to compensate for this wily, crazy, chaotic inside is I try to get things done on the outside. And that's when we lose our patience. Because every time, you ready? Every time you lose your patience over a situation, the reason why you lost, that, uh, lost your patience over that situation is because that situation is reminding you of what's happening inside of you. See, when there's a situation that goes wrong, but it's in the category of something that you're confident in, you don't lose your patience. And people are like, wow, you handled that really well. It's because that part of me on the inside is going well. But whenever something happens in an area, whenever something happens on the outside, and it reflects an area of my life on the inside that is completely out of control, that's when we lose our patience. And please keep in mind, just in case you're wondering, this isn't going to be a sermon on what patience is, but losing your patience is immediately becoming not your true self. So please don't think that because you don't yell, scream, and punch holes in the wall 
that you have your patience. Sometimes there are people, many of whom are in this room, many of whom I know very well in this room, where the way you lose your temper is to use silence as a weapon. And you look so good doing it. I didn't say a word. I don't use silence as a weapon. I use my words to destroy silence. But there are other people, just because my, my personality is an aggressive one, right, Jeff? <laughs> so when we lose our temper, when we're not being patient, you know. Passive aggressive. There you go. He gets it. I'm not married to someone who uses silence as a weapon. You're not married to someone who uses silence as a weapon. <laughs> but there are people where you just withdraw. You just stay quiet. You don't enter the situation. You're not trying to fix it. You're just trying to stay out of it to take the path of least resistance. You know who did that? Adam. Adam didn't lose his temper, but he also didn't step in and do anything good, and everything went wrong. So just because you didn't flip out, just because you didn't say anything wrong, just because you didn't go nuts, sometimes sitting back and sitting down is a form of losing your patience. In other words, you're saying, I'm so done with this, I'm not even going to offer another bit of my emotions to this situation. I'm done. That could be healthy. It could be losing your patience. And it's always because we're unresolved on the inside. Jesus says, this generation is like people who, I played the flute and you didn't dance, and I played a funeral dirge and you didn't weep. John came and he wasn't eating anything and you said, he has a demon. I show up and I'm eating and drinking at parties and making 180 gallons of wine and everybody said, <laughs> and you say that I'm a drunkard. This dude doesn't eat anything, he's got a demon. I eat and drink, I'm a glutton and a wine-bibber. And what he's doing is he's looking at a group of people saying, you're never satisfied. If I say up, you say down. If I say weep, you laugh. If I say laugh, you weep. If I don't eat, I have a demon. If I drink, I'm a drunkard. And when we focus on ourselves, we can see in ourselves, you ready? If you're in a place in your life where all of a sudden you're just contrarian to anything that's happening... It's a lack of patience. And you ready? It's a lack of patience, not with the situation you're facing, but with yourself. If we were patient with ourselves, we would never lose our patience with anybody else. But when situations touch the areas of my life that I wish were better now, I lose my patience with the situation but really, it's me losing patience with myself. That's why Paul is writing his personal thought process, his manic, depressed at this point in his life, his manic, emotionally unhealthy moment he was having, despairing of life itself, he says in 2 Corinthians. He writes it for us because he knows that when you're unresolved on the inside, you will try and resolve everything around you on the outside. And you will force your way. You will force a conclusion onto things. And you know what happens? We get satisfied with far too little. 
when we're unresolved on the inside and you've been praying that your kid would go to church their whole life and you're unresolved on the inside and so you're trying to find things to fix on the outside, you know what happens? You get way too satisfied if your kid shows up to church. Doesn't mean anything changed in their life whatsoever. There are people who are here right now for worse reasons than people who aren't here at all. But when we are impatient, a sign that something might be getting better, we act like it already has. And it leads to disappointment. Because we weren't slow. We weren't cultivating. We weren't playing the long game. So it's dangerous. Losing our patience isn't just getting angry. It's also celebrating too soon. You know how many times we said the pandemic's over? It's just wave after wave after wave of some kind of craziness. But every time something good happens, it's like, oh, we're better now. Something's coming. So losing your patience is flipping out, but it's also celebrating too fast. Okay. In closing, there is, and this is going to sound boring for a second, but just humor me for a second. In the manuscripts, Many of the original manuscripts of the Old Testament, and now we're finding in the New, they're written, be, they're written because people are using them in worship services. And so in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, I'm going to mispronounce this, but there is, in the, manu, in the oldest manuscripts, there's a musical note written all over the lines of the Torah because the Torah was originally chanted. It wasn't read. It was sung. Uh, in Deuteronomy 32, Moses commands that they sing the Torah, right? And so the Torah, they, they obeyed that, and the Torah was often chanted and sung. And so with the scripture verses, there's also musical notes in a, lot of the, in a lot of the manuscripts telling you the inflection of how we're supposed to sing this. And there's something called the Shashalet. I'm saying that wrong because I'm Italian. Forgive me, world. But I'm going to go ahead and say it's called the Shashalet. And it is, it's a musical note that appears only four times in the Torah. And it's the kind of musical note where if you're watching a movie and something really good is happening, sometimes the, the, in the score of the, of the movie, something really good could happen. And then there could be one change in the music. And now you know that that good thing that just happened might not be good because of the way the music changed suddenly. So music is one of the ways the earliest Jewish rabbis interpreted the Torah. Music helps us interpret things. Something great can happen in a movie, and then dun-dun-dun, and all of a sudden it's like, wait, that smile that she gave, that I thought it was an I love you smile, but it might be an I'm going to kill you in your sleep tonight smile, right? So four times this musical note shows up, and it shows up to reflect inner conflict. There's four times where it shows up in the Torah, and when it shows up, it shows up where when you're chanting the Torah, it, it, you sing a sour note in a moment where something appears to have been good because the interpretation is that even though this looks good, there's an internal conflict happening here that you can't see in the text. It's happening in the emotions. One of them 
is when Lot agrees to leave Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says to his family, we have to go and don't look back. So he finally agrees, we're going to leave. And there is the musical note. Which means that Lot was having an internal, he made the right decision to leave, but it came after a moment of internal conflict. What was the conflict? He didn't know who he was anymore. Am I a Hebrew or am I now a citizen of Sodom and Gomorrah? And after the inner conflict of who he was, I'm, I'm going to continue to follow this God of, of Abraham. And he leaves. Right? His wife didn't win the inner conflict, and she looked back. The next time it shows up is everybody's favorite story of when Potiphar's wife is trying to sleep with Joseph. And Joseph is like, yo, I can't do this. I know I look good, but I can't do this because I don't want to. And, and it says that he left. And when he left, she grabbed his clothes, and they came off, but he left anyway. That musical note shows up. He left after, surprise, surprise, much inner conflict. But here's what got me. I would think that the inner conflict was he wanted to sleep with her. But Jewish tradition says that the inner conflict he had was a conflict of identity. I was brought here unjustly. And I'm no longer a Hebrew. I'm an Egyptian now. And I have a right to the things that Egyptian men have a right to. And he snapped out of it. No, I'm still a Hebrew. And he left. See, there's always an inner conflict about who we are. Every time we mess up, Q Wednesday night Zoom study, every time we mess up, it's not because we're bad. It's because we don't know who we are. Every time we make a mistake, every time we do something harmful, it's not because we're evil. It's because we forgot who we were. If we knew who we were, Jesus knew who he was. He was the beloved son of God in whom the father was well pleased. That's why he's able to endure temptation. Because he knows who he is. The fourth time it happens, I'm skipping the third. The fourth time it happens, it's when Moses dresses Aaron as a priest. He takes him up the mountain and he puts the priestly clothes on him. And that musical note shows up. Why? Because Moses is having an inner conflict. Well, what could it be? This is the moment that Moses realized Aaron is really the priest and I'm merely the prophet. At the burning bush, I said, don't send me. And God said, fine, we'll send Aaron with you. And this was the moment where Moses realized now Aaron gets to be the priest and his children get to be the priest. As Rabbi Jonathan Sachs said, the children of priests become priests, but nary do the children of prophets become prophets. So Moses knew this is the end. You're not going to hear about my kids in this lineage. You're going to hear about Aaron's though. And he didn't know who he was. Am I a priest or am I a prophet? And then he snapped out of it. And he said, I'll be the prophet, and he can be the priest. So all three of those stories have that musical note, that inner conflict note, and the person in the story ends up doing the right thing, but not without inner conflict. Because remember what we said, when there's inner conflict, we lose our patience and force things on the outside. The final and only other time this happens is in this story that we read today about Eleazar. Eleazar prays, Lord, 
bless my master Abraham and help me find his son a wife. And if you're watching the movie, you're like, that's so nice of him. But there's that musical note. And it dawns on you that when you first hear about Eleazar, it's Abraham saying to God, I have no child. The only person that is an heir of my house is who? Eleazar of Damascus for all you Bible scholars. So Abraham says, I have no son. Eleazar, who's not my son, he's the rightful heir of all my stuff. Eleazar's sitting there like, if I don't get this wife for Abraham and I can outlive Isaac and he dies, guess who gets all of Abraham's stuff? Me. And so the, when, when the Jewish people are chanting this story, it's such a beautiful moment of loyalty, but then there's this sour note. Because all of us would struggle with this. Wait a minute. He says, Abraham, uh, if I can't find a wife, you want me to bring Isaac there? And Abraham's like, no, don't bring him there. Want me to find a wife from this other area? He's like, don't find a wife from that other area. And, and Eliezer's like, so, if I don't find a wife here, he doesn't get married. And if he doesn't get married and something should happen to him, bestow on me all the riches of Abraham. But he realizes, I'm not his son. I'm his servant. And the crisis of identity is averted again. Lot, Joseph, Moses, Eleazar wrestled with who they were. And upon wrestling with who they were, something settled their soul. Something settled their soul and told them it's okay to be who you are. And the way they learned who they were is by realizing who they were not. And once they came to a settled disposition of who they were not, they were able to be who they were, and they were able to do the things of God with joy and with freedom and with patience. Well, where does this inner settledness come from that settles my insides so that I could be patient and unhurried and more cultivating and less Beady on the outside. It's what Jacqueline read. It's not willpower. It's not a technique. It's hearing the voice of Jesus say, come away with me. The winter is over. The grass is growing. You made it through the fire. I know you're tired. Let me just speak tenderly to you for a minute. What? I need something I can do. That's the problem. We want to know what we can do. We want conferences. We want techniques. We want small groups. We want all these things because we want to know what can I do to win. And that mentality is an impatient mentality. It's not about what we can do. It's not about willing ourselves into patience. It's about being moved by the slow, methodical, romantic love of God over our life every day. It's about stopping and hearing him in the moment of chaos. It's about waking up in the morning and giving him 30 seconds, five minutes, 20 minutes, not no minutes, and not four hours. 
about giving him a chance to say, come away with me. Listen to this. In the Song of Solomon, he says, come away with me. In the gospel, what does Jesus say? Come to me. Come away with me and come to me. Let's stand to our feet this morning. This is for somebody, and we're going to come to the table with this. There are so many of us that want to be patient, long-suffering, not rushed. But it's because, and that won't happen until, we are melted on the inside and truly believe how much God loves us as we are right now. For some of you today, for everybody, he wants to bring that calm on the inside. I can look around the room and I can feel the turmoil that needs to be calmed. He wants to calm it. One of the ways he will is to say to you, come away with me. Step away from the situation. Move your brain off of it. Take a vacation from it. Well, it's my job. <laughs> How do I take a vacation from that? Fast the inner complaining. Come away with me. For some of you, that's what he's saying. I will calm you by you need to step off the situation for a minute. You need to step off thinking about this 24-7. You need to step off trying to control it. You need to step off trying to fix something somebody else is going through. You need to step off trying to make it right so that they can have a happy future. You need to step off. Think. <laughs> Put it down and step away from the vehicle. <laughs> Move over there. For others in this room, you can't get out of it. It's not something that you can step away from. In that moment, he's saying, come to me. I'm in, I'm more in your chaos than you are. I'm more in your storm than you are. I'm deeper in your turmoil than you are. Come to me. I'm standing in the middle of it with you. Come to me and offer me the weight of it all. I know you can't get out of it. I know that you can't sidestep it. I know that you can't put it down. So come to me. For some of you, he's saying, come away from it. If it's something that you can, come away from it. And let me settle you. So that when you go back to it, you're not trying to resolve it. You're just living with it. For others, you can't let it go. It's something that if you let it go, it would have a terrible ripple effect. He's saying, come to me. Join me in standing in this chaos with you. And hear me say, this is the key, Salem. This is what none of us will get the first time I say it. Hear me say, Hear me say, come away with me or come to me. That's it. Hear him say it. Don't think you have to do 
anything. As I said to the worship team this morning, when God said, let there be light, there wasn't light because light said yes to him. There was light because he said what? Let there be. The only thing we mess up is we don't hear the grace-filled invitation to come away with me, to come to me. You're not your next action in the situation. You ready, Salem? You're not the good or the bad that's happening in the thing that you're facing. Your identity is not the success or the failure of that situation. Your identity is you're the one he's saying, come away with me too. Come to me. You're his child. And you'll sit there and say, all that sermon just to tell me what you've said a thousand times, we haven't said it enough. Because our ego wants a call to action. They teach you in, you're going to become a preschool. Don't end your sermons with a call to action. It's what the ego wants. End your sermon with a proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, that he is calling you away and you are not the success and failures of your life. You're something so much more important to him than that. You're you. You're you. That's who you are. So as you come forward this morning and you receive this bread, he's giving you himself. This bread is him saying, come to me or come away with me, whatever your situation is. But what you have to put down so that you can receive the bread is you have to put down that intensity to resolve the situation tomorrow. Put it down and receive the bread. Be nourished for whatever situation you're facing. It's a long one. Well, the decision has to be tomorrow. Well, the splash of that decision will last a while. They're long. Everyone, even the smallest decisions, they're long ones. Somebody said to me, can you make me tea? When I was, when I was young, can you make tea for me while I'm singing? Sure. That was a little decision. Six years later, I'm pastoring the church that I was making tea for the singers in. Somebody make you tea? Who makes you tea? Mike Mandia? Maybe Mike Mandia is going to be the pastor here one day. Who knows? You don't know. These simple little decisions, they're not simple, they're not little, and they're not quick. They ripple forever. So slow down. But how do I slow down? Hear him call to you. You just need to hear him call to you. Uh, Chris Green says, Mary said yes to God. And the way he describes it is this. God spoke into Mary the very yes that she was able to give back to him. He speaks what he wants into you. He never demands anything from you that he already hasn't created in you to give back to him. You don't have to muster it up. It's there already. Because he said it. When he says, come away with me, you're away with him because he said it. When he says, come to me, you only heard him say it because you were what? With him. When he calls you, you're already there. Know that. That's the good news. And that's what will settle you. Pastor, how do I go when he calls me? You already went. 
I don't think so. Trust me. He's already with you. Closer than you could, closer than your rebellion. Closer than your sin and your carnality. You can't get away from him. He loves you too much and he will keep calling away to you until the inside is settled and you can finally slow down on the outside and enjoy, listen to me, enjoy the blessings and trials of life and see the beauty in all of them because Jesus is in them with you. Lord Jesus, on the night that we betrayed you, you took that betrayal and you spoke over it. This is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which is spilled for you. As often as you come to this table, come in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, this table is the way that you say, come away with me. Come to me. Sit with me. I'm in green pastures. Sit with me. I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. Sit with me. I'm in the presence of my enemy. I'm making a table before you. Wherever you are, bring that situation to this table and sit down with him and rest. Holy Spirit, I pray that you descend on this bread and make it for your people the body and blood of Jesus, the food and drink of new and unending life in him, and descend on us, forgive us of our sins, and anoint us to hear the call to be settled on the inside and to live a life of love that is patient. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.